I'm here today with Susan Hayward and Peter Mandeville, and we'll be talking about religion in the news in December 2019. There are certainly no shortage of stories about religion this month from all over the world, and I know Susan and Peter have shared articles with me about China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Japan, the Holy See, the UAE, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and the USA. So we'll get started, and we'll see how much we can cover today. I know we probably won't be able to cover it all, um, but I'm excited to, to talk about some of these topics with you. But first, we'll start with some introductions. Susan Hayward is a senior advisor for religion and inclusive societies at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and she is currently pursuing her doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, focusing on Buddhist and Christian responses to authoritarianism and conflict in Myanmar. For both Susan and uh, Peter, they have extensive, wonderful bios. They will be posted on the Religious Studies Project page, and I encourage you to go there and read their entire bios to see their backgrounds. Dr. Peter Mandeville is a professor of international affairs in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, and he's also a senior research fellow at Georgetown's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. They both have really excellent backgrounds to discuss the news stories that we'll be talking about today, and I'm very excited to have them. Thank you both so much for being here today uh, on this episode of Discourse. I'd like to start with news out of Abu Dhabi. So would one of you like to explain the assembly that gathered there this month? Sure. So this is, well, first of all, thank you for having us here today. And it's great to be in conversation about um, a vast range of topics across the world. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so the gathering that happened in Abu Dhabi is part of an initiative that's led by Abdullah Sheikh Pimbeya, who is a very well-known and renowned and respected scholar of Islamic jurisprudence, comes out of Mauritania, um, but has a deep affiliation now with the United Arab Emirates, where his organization, the Forum for Promoting Peace for Muslim Societies, is based. So they have been holding a number of um, forum over the past several years, um, annually gathering in Abu Dhabi in December for their for their forum that addresses a range of issues related to coexistence and peace and tolerance. Um, they're also well known, um, in some circles anyway, for uh, spearheading what's called the Marrakesh Declaration that was um, convened and signed in Marrakesh in Morocco that um, promoted coexistence from within Islamic jurisprudence, um, reckoning back to or hearkening back to the Medina Charter that was signed under the Prophet Muhammad in order to um, advocate for religious freedom and religious minority rights within an Islamic jurisprudence uh, framework. So building on that same kind of legacy and support, they convened something called the Alliance of Virtues at the forum this year in December in partnership with the foreign ministry of the UAE. And the Alliance of Virtues is similar to the Marrakesh Declaration, kind of in line with it in seeking to promote coexistence, religious freedom, and it's deeply linked as well to the year of tolerance that's being promoted by the United Arab Emirates government. So that's the background. And Peter, if you want to offer a little bit of analysis, yeah. Sure, sure. So Ben, thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, so folks are probably wondering, okay, so what's the story? You know, we need tolerance. We need peace. You know, great to have senior religious leaders talking up about the dangers of extremism, particularly in the Middle East. So what's the story here? The story here, I think, is a set of concerns that some have expressed about the um, provenance, let me put it that way, of this whole undertaking, which is... Uh, 
the United Arab Emirates, um, a country that, uh, through some of its own conduct in the Middle East over the last five years, uh, certainly its partnership with Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis the um, rather disastrous humanitarian tragedy that the civil war in Yemen has become, as well as its funding and support to various uh, militant elements across the region involved in various conflicts. You know, some have pointed to a certain irony um, around the idea that this is a country you know, holding this parade of forums about peace and tolerance when its own behavior in the region seems to often be a driver of instability and and violence itself. I, I think th- with respect to the religion component of all of this, I think what worries me is that uh, surrounding a lot of this is the discussion about how senior religious leaders, you know, particularly in Islam, need to stand up for and speak about the importance of moderate interpretations of religion in order to combat the extreme ideas of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and, and international partners and allies of the United Emirates, Emirates tend to show up at these forums and, you know, validate them and, and, and talk about how useful and helpful they are. And what, what worries me in particular is that I, I wonder if sometimes what might be going on is, um, international partners enabling the United Arab Emirates and its allies to kind of displace blame onto religion for things whose more proximate causes are actually connected to the way that those countries do business in the Middle East and other neighboring regions. So, you know, in in extolling the virtues of these sort of summits and conferences, are we maybe not enabling a displacement of blame um, onto something other than what is actually driving a lot of instability? I think that's a really excellent point, and it comes to a couple other articles that you brought up. So I just want to add those into the mix, not that we need to step away from Abu Dhabi totally, but I'm curious when you bring up the extent to which "quote unquote" religious violence is actually religious per se, um, and not uh, related to political crises. That makes me think of the articles you sent about Uyghur Muslims in China and the plight of the Rohingya in Myanmar. To what extent are these actually religious issues versus something else? And what do we know about these conferences at Abu Dhabi that are? Uh, positioning, quote-unquote, moderate Islam as some sort of antidote to extremist Islam, thinking about the the uh, purpose of discourse and the definition of religion. So are we defining religion in a way that's too, too capacious or actually ignoring the relationship between religion and social, political, cultural issues? Yeah, I mean, at the heart of all of this is the challenge that's that we have... Um, edit that out that we've inherited okay at the heart of all of this is the problem that we've inherited from the enlightenment era where there was an attempt to deconflict or disentangle the political and the religious which is a is a historic moment that happened in a particular place that is unlike anything that has ever happened previously and we're still dealing with the legacies of this attempt to disentangle um, two dimensions of human life that I think are necessarily and always entangled with one another. So there's a certain irony when you look at the UAE in, um, in the forum that's taking place there. And, and I just, in response to what Peter said, I, I do want to say that I think there is worth in these, these, these attempts by, um, renowned religious scholars and bringing together multi-faith, 
um, actors together to draw from their rich historical legacies and from the theological schools that they come from in order to um, advance ideas of coexistence and respect. Um, but I also agree with Peter and some of the concerns about how states are then taking advantage of some of those or participating in some of those same kinds of exercises in ways that um, that actually kind of take advantage of this enlightenment exercise of trying to disentangle politics and religion and then to present religion as the problem for security and for justice. Religion becomes the irrational, the emotional, the violent, the, the feminized other to secularity or to the state. And it's um, articulation or, or exercise or decision making over issues related to justice and security in ways that are per then perceived or presented as more rational, as less violent, as objective, as sort of the masculine in, in, in a gendered construction of it. And so, um, it becomes a particular irony when that is done in places where the state and, and the, and religious institutions continue to be very entangled. Um, and I think we see that in, in, in the UAE example as well, um, where the state is, is both presenting religion as a threat to order, but at the same time, it's participating in a certain construction of religion as well when it's, when it's, when it's working in lockstep with religious scholars and, and advancing these kinds of articulations. So there's, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of almost internal contradiction, but also a sort of political attempt to take advantage of some of these tropes and these, these challenges, um, from the Enlightenment era about trying to distinguish between between two things that I think you can't quite distinguish between. So now turning to the, the Uyghur and the Rohingya crises and how they're being portrayed um, and understood, there, there is often, I think, an attempt to, um, to see these issues as religious issues that have then policy implications because then the, the solution to them becomes dealing with the religious issue, which is often framed in terms of religious freedom um, and ensuring that the religious freedom of the Uyghur and the Rohingya populations are, are being protected and advanced. Um, but that becomes a challenge because in both instances, um, religion is a dimension of, and religious identity is, is a dimension of the crises, but to see it only through that lens would be to close off a more fulsome understanding of what's taking place and the economic interests and the political interests of Myanmar, of China, of other um, states that are responding to the situation or not. Um, and perhaps one of the, the ways that that's highlighted is, is just the very fact that um, this week we have Aung San Suu Kyi in The Hague um, as part of the Myanmar delegation defending itself against the um, accusation brought by Gambia on behalf of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation against Myanmar for violating the Genocide Convention. Um, with its um, military operations in Rakhine State that led that targeted the Rohingya, um, according to this accusation, and led to um, led to their expulsion from from the from the country. And so there you have the the OIC Muslim majority countries who are banding together in order to advance this accusation against Myanmar. Whereas in the Uyghur situation, you actually have. Um, this week, Peter sent us a link to an article that showed how Iran and Saudi Arabia are actually um, coming together in 
defense of the China's position with respect to the Uyghur situation. Yes, and I, I think it perfectly illustrates the point you just made, Susie, about how so many of these situations that are conventionally explained to us as being about um, religion and the oppression of religious minorities. Um, you know, when when you look at how certain actors who in theory would be you know, co-religionist allies mm -hmm. of those groups, Precisely. the geopolitics comes into it very clearly, right? So since the Islamic Revolution in Iran of 1979, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been in a sort of Islamically holier-than-thou arms race with each other to try to outdo the other in terms of being the great defender of Islam around the world. And, you know, throughout the 1980s, you would see them competing every time a religious, um, a Muslim minority group, some, in some part of the world was being oppressed, they'd compete with each other to appear to be the one who is, you know, most supportive of that group. Um, and so on the face of it, you would expect, given the scale and, and the nature of what is being done to Muslims in the western provinces of China, um, Uyghurs in particular, you would expect to see a replay of that same competition to be the international supporter par excellence of, of Uyghurs. But in fact, quite the opposite has happened. Right. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia under the effective leadership of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, has effectively endorsed the counter-terrorism explanation that the that Beijing uses to explain and justify mm -hmm. what's going on in Xinjiang province. Um, Which is the same argument that the Myanmar military and the Myanmar government was making in defense of their actions against the Rohingya. Absolutely. And and then and Iran this past weekend effectively did the same thing. Um, you know, and, and I, I think it's not too difficult to kind of parse and read what's going on there. Both of these countries are deeply keen to be able to participate in and work with China in the context of its Belt and Road Initiative. Iran is so keen to be part of that. And obviously, MBS in Saudi Arabia has his Vision 2030 thing, which involves, you know, a global portfolio of investments, mainly in Asian emerging economies. And so I think this is a very clear case of, of geoeconomic interests trumping what otherwise might be a story about, you know, um, uh, co-religionist allyship that has mm -hmm. just, I mean, I mean, left us in a very dire situation. Right. And so if you were only to understand the issue through a religious frame, you wouldn't pick up some of these larger, you wouldn't be able to explain some of yeah, these larger you, you, geopolitical you would, you'd be issues. Perplexed, I think. And you wouldn't be able to come up with a policy solution that would take into account some of the economic interests, including Belt and Road, which also have relevance to the situation that's taking place in Myanmar. Just to circle back briefly to Abu Dhabi, since it's yeah. kind of continuing to lurk behind everything exactly. we're saying. Yeah. Um, and, and to some extent, to kind of double down on a point that you're making about how I think, you know, what's going on here in part is the, the government of the Emirates wanting to pick up uh, on assumptions that circulate particularly in Europe and the United States about the idea of violence in the Middle East as having religious causes, right? You know, uh, uh, to, to kind of pick up those sorts of explanations um, and, and, and kind of riff on them, surf that for all the political value they can get out of it. Um, and I think what worries me about it, though, is that you know, I, no doubt it's good to have these, I'd rather these statements be said and made than not. But 
I never get the impression that they ever filter down to or disseminated or pushed down to the level of society's right. capinities. I feel like what is often happening here is the creation of a sort of transnational frequent fire class of, of um, interfaith operators that, that fly around the world and gather together in lavish forums and make statements yeah. um, and press releases are issued and then later on, we never really hear anything right. happening at the level of communities in relation to. So when do these messages or declarations get used by actual folks on the ground in order to advocate yeah. for political opponents yes. or for um, yes. or for actual advancement of yes. minority rights in ways that might go against the status quo? And Yes. In I mean, you mentioned the Marrakesh de de declaration earlier and, the, you know, there's a lot of international excitement about it, but it, it had a sort of limited circulation and like, you know, everyone was very excited about it in Oslo. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were down on the ground in Pakistan or the Central African Republic, very no one had heard of it. Yeah. No one was talking about it. Yeah. But interestingly, I will say that um, I raised this issue with Sheikh Mimbeya at one point, and he, he said to me, um, I recognize I'm a scholar. And I recognize, like, I don't, I don't know how to do the work of activism and, ad and advocacy. Yes. And so what I hope is that by my lending my authority to this document and offering this sort of jurisprudential argument on behalf of minority rights, that that can then be taken up by the activists on the ground who can do the mobilization and then can try to hold decision makers to account. So, again, I agree with you entirely that yeah. those things have not been done. Those declarations haven't been seized in the yeah. way that they could. Yeah. But it's a little bit like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? That's a great document that professes an ideal in practice that states sign on to. Yeah. But where the rubber actually hits the road is where it's used by the activists and the advocates in order to advance towards that actual ideal that's articulated that people have ostensibly signed on to. It needs to become documents of accountability for them to actually have the kind of effect that we would hope. So I just want to touch on one, one component of what you're saying. What I'm hearing is that there's one question, which is about the diagnosis of these various crises and being more holistic in our understanding of them, not solely defining them as religious crises, but looking at the geopolitical implications as well. I'm interested, though, in those of us who care about resolving these crises or reducing the amount of violence against these communities. It seems that many in the international human rights space have chosen religious freedom as the most effective method for addressing the crises, or at least the the most um, well-honed tool for calling countries like China or Myanmar to account. Do you think that that's true? Is there, because to me, religious freedom then is to a certain extent naming it as a religious crisis. And so is there some other framework that more accurately describes the full, uh, full complexity of, of the problem and allows other governments or communities to call those states into account. Is religious freedom what the tool that we have and that's why we're using it? Is it because we're misdiagnosing the problem as only a religious problem? Is there another tool that might work? I think it's a tool that helps to open the door to addressing the issue. The, the, the challenge I see is when we only use that tool. Because when we do that, I think that's when we end up then diagnosing it as a religion problem that needs a religious solution and not looking at the full 
the full gambit of what's going on um, and the other tools that need to be brought in to address the larger issue. I think right now in particular, it's an effective tool because there is so much um, political capital and attention around the issue of freedom of religion. Um, but I just, I worry again that not only do we need to right size religion in how we understand any of these global dynamics or, or particular crises events that are taking place to not underestimate or overestimate the role of religion in it. Um, but I also think we need to right size religious freedom and mm. how we diagnose these problems and in the solutions we offer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I maybe even go a little further. I, I think it's not just that, you know, religious freedom is one among many lenses we should use. I, I think that because there's I think a particular political predisposition towards an emphasis on religious freedom right now for a variety of reasons. Um, there's a tendency to kind of lean in that direction when I think it actually pulls us away from focusing on the root causes of a lot of these issues. It is certainly the case that a lot of the instability and violence in the regions we're talking about does disproportionately affect particular religious communities and often religious minority communities. And it is the case that some of it, such as violence, you know, perpetrated by by Daesh, by ISIS and groups like that, um, it, it does actually have in their eyes an actual theological basis to it. But but a lot of the violence and vulnerability and marginality that religious communities and minority communities in the Middle East face is, is really a function of more prosaic structural factors around politics and and. and economics. And so to suggest that that promoting religious freedom is the best way to address the root causes of the problem, um, I think is just not analytically accurate. I do want to um, return to one dimension of this, though, which gets back at some of the, um, the issues of violent extremism, and particularly violent extremism that has a religious dimension and how all of that plays into this, right? Because there is at the heart of this as well, also, Especially, I think in the in the Uyghur in the China case, also this mindset or framework of a particular form of religion, in this case Islam, is a threat to the state. And so there is definitely a dimension of regulating religious practice and even suppressing religious practice on behalf of the Uyghur. So when we hear about you know not being able to practice fasting during Ramadan, not being able to or being forced to eat pork or being forced to drink or being forced to do things that violate their religious practices, um, those are squarely issues of a violation of of the free practice of their their faith um, that fit within this and it's driven again by this um, kind of enlightenment era articulation or understanding of religion is the threat to the state and so we need to we need to somehow control religion or manage religion in a way that ensures stability and security that has real implications for religious freedom. So all of this is dancing in, in a lot of these. I mean, even going back to the UAE and others and the ways in which different governments respond to them. So that, so you, you mentioned, you know, in Oslo, there was a celebration of the Marrakesh Declaration. And in the US, I think there was also a celebration of it. Sure. And, um, and yet we also need to be constantly questioning. Yes, we celebrate when there's these kinds of articulations of, religious tolerance or religious practice that is in line with certain human rights values and so on. We, and, you know, it may be good and right, 
but lurking behind that is also where the the larger question of um, are we celebrating state constructions of religion nonetheless where the state, whether it's the UAE or others, are advancing a particular expression and practice of religion driven out of this desire to address violent extremism that is associated with religion that ultimately leads to violations of religious freedom and practice. And do we need to be thinking about the freedom of religion or religious freedom, like that broader articulation of it that's in the United Nations of um, the right to freedom of conscience or right to freedom of belief that then allows for tolerance, not just of different people of different religious traditions and protected protection for religious minorities, but, you know, protection for those who might be political opponents or who have um, different expressions of their, their freedom of conscience and practice. I want to pick up on, on one thing that keeps coming up about, um, as we've said multiple times, that these conflicts are not just driven by religion, that there are other drivers for the conflicts. And I wonder if then, when scholars say things like that, and I include myself in that, that I, I try to communicate this complexity to different audiences, what happens is when they look at conflicts that perhaps um, are unexpected. So when Buddhists commit acts of violence, for example, they then say, oh, well, what you're saying is that that's not Buddhism. It's actually just uh, political violence and they're per- it's a perversion of Buddhism when they commit this act of violence. So could you talk about perhaps we want to be more clear in saying that religion isn't necessarily the only driver of conflict, but what are we also then saying that religion isn't involved in all, that it's a perversion or that there's some other role for religion. You know, my position on this, Ben, has always been that, um, it, you know, we, we, we need to avoid the dual dangers of either overemphasizing, overprivileging religion as an explanatory cause for a given violence, or as is sometimes the temptation or overcorrection to remove religion from the picture altogether, um, and rather to understand it's at times very complex interplay with all of these other factors, which, you know, isn't often a satisfactory answer to people who want to know, is it religion or not? Um, but, but, you know, to my mind, that's the only way to really get at the question of where religion fits into it. One, I think, helpful way to get at this, though, is to kind of stop asking questions about whether religion is the cause or not in a binary way, like yes or no, on or off, and rather to ask more qualitative questions about what specific role is religion playing in a given kind of conflict. So, you know, if you look at, at, you know, the crisis around Daesh in, in 2014, 2015, foreign fighter phenomenon, um, you know, there were some situations where Islam, you know, was providing a source of identity that would help people from different backgrounds to come together and see themselves being part of a common cause. Sometimes religion was playing the role of providing like a meta narrative that helped to give meaning to a broad differentiating set of grievances. Um, and sometimes religion was, you know, being used to provide something like a moral warrant for engaging in behavior acts of violence, for example, that, that someone wouldn't. So I think simply asking whether religion is a cause or not doesn't really help us to get at it. We need to kind of understand the kind of contextual specificity that religion has in a given conflict. But I know Susie <laughs> will have a, a lot to say about the Buddhism example that you just raised. 
Yeah, I think actually part of the reason that I started studying political Buddhism or Buddhism and violence and peace was in part because of this very question that you asked, Benjamin, because I, I, I felt as if, um, you know, the assumptions in the West that that religion is a problem unless it's Buddhism. Because Buddhism is the religion of peace. And so Buddhists are, you know, they're, they're modern, they're philosophical. Buddhism itself isn't encumbered with the kind of rituals and myths and, and so on that can, that can lend themselves to violent impulses in the same way that the, that the Abrahamic traditions and Islam in particular, so goes the stereotype, um, has. And, and so that led me to Sri Lanka when I was a, when I was a graduate student, a master's level graduate student, because there you had um, an example that went against that popular assumption. There you had Buddhists who were mobilizing um, in in protest of the peace process, in support of the civil war, um, against minority rights. You had monks who were assassinating political leaders. Um, and then you had, you know, the major ethnic groups and religious groups where the, the Buddhists are the majority, but then you have the, um, the Tamils who are Christian and Hindu. And then a third group that defines itself religiously, um, is the Muslim community. And they weren't involved as parties to the conflict, but they were ethnically cleansed from the north by the Tamil Tigers. They were shot at by, uh, the Sri Lankan government that was seen to represent the Sinhala Buddhist majority. And they really didn't take to arms in response to any of that. And when you spoke to them on the ground, they would often refer to their Islamic values as the reasons for which they did not take to arms and remain pacifist in the face of that. And so I was drawn to that Sri Lanka as um, example as a case study because I felt like it forced those of us coming from the West anyway to begin to think in a little bit more of a nuanced way about how religion manifests in this particular setting in in ways that get entangled with various, you know, political and cultural it's issues. Supposedly to peaceful violence. people are being violent. The supposedly violent people were the peaceful ones. Yeah. yeah. And so people... And, and so I've, I've found, you know, even even since then, as you know, the the current dynamics in Myanmar, um, with with not just the the Rohingya Muslim community, but but at large against Muslims and its response to international actors and so on, and, and the ways in which Buddhism intersects with some of that, and much less some of the actions of of Buddhist monastic activist groups in both Myanmar and Sri Lanka over several years has garnered the fascination of a lot of media. And we've seen many, many op-eds, um, you know, that, that have some sort of variation on the, you think Buddhism is a peaceful religion. Well, look at this, but nonetheless, I mean, that that's, you know, that's all driven by, by this Orientalist assumption that, that Buddhists are otherworldly and are somehow more peaceful and less, less human, <laughs> quite frankly, than those of other faiths. But that sympathetic approach towards Buddhism, I think, actually ends up allowing for then a little bit more of a willingness to understand how religion intersects with some of these other things, gets manipulated in some cases, or like, you know, legitimately drives in some cases a uh, uh, support for particular kinds of behavior attitudes that we that we might find um, abhorrent from from our particular mindset. Right, and this came into the news this month because of elections in Sri Lanka. Is that is that right? Right. So in Sri Lanka, we have um, the. Uh, the re-election of the Rajapakshas, Gotabaya uh, Rajapaksha was elected in the in November, who is the, the Minister of Defense um, at the end of the Civil War and the brother of the former 
uh, President Mahinda Rajapaksha. And the Rajapakshas are seen to have a very close relationship with some of these Buddhist monastic activist groups, namely the Bodhabalasena, um, which translates as the Buddhist power group, which is a very anti-Muslim, anti-minority rights, suspicious of, of international cooperation um, group. And, and so you have seen, you know, recently some, some articles and some framing of, um, you know, again, here we see Buddhist nationalists, some of these monk actors who are, who are campaigning for the Rajapakshas and who are celebrating when, when the Rajapaksha regime was reestablished in Sri Lanka, seeing that is a victory for Buddhism against particularly Islam, but other religions and, and, you know, foreign interference and, and the threats that are seen to, to Buddhism. And so again, the sort of fascination with this per- perplexing fascination with how Buddhism is manifesting in a way that seems to go against the tropes, but also um, a bit more than a disentangling of, well, what does Buddhism actually have to do with this? And sort of seeing the, the entangled relationship between various um, economic interests, political interests, and religious interests that, that lead to this kind of collusion between political actors and Buddhist actors in Sri Lanka. Thank you for that summary of what's going on there. And I do, in the limited time we have left, just want to acknowledge that we've had a lot of conversations about uh, religion in the news and parts of the world that we don't live in. So I want to just turn to the parts of the world that we do live in, thinking about anti-Semitism has been in the news quite a bit the last few weeks with the uh, general election in the UK and in the United States with an executive order by President Trump. Um, which was initially reported as reclassifying or at least interpreting Judaism not only as a religion, but also as a nationality. Would you like to say anything about that executive order or its implications? Well, you know, I think, you know, this is a very quickly developing story, you know, and we're just now, I think, um, starting to actually see the text itself. And, you know, what, what seemed to be going on here is that the, the, the White House is for purposes of, um, the, the, uh, title, the Department of Education's Title VI, uh, legislation, um, uh, adopting a definition of anti-Semitism, which is, and has been used for the last couple of years by the U.S. State Department. We're talking about anti-Semitism in in the world, and it, it's it's been criticized by some as being rather broad in nature. And I think the concern has been that um, because uh, th- there have been concerns expressed by the Trump administration and some around it uh, that there are some campuses in the United States where Middle East studies as a field is taught with a a bias against. Israel, that if if anti-Semitism were to be defined in a way that would allow um, Judaism uh, to fall into a protected category within the framework of Title VI, um, then that would allow those perceived uh, cases of, of discrimination and bias um, to be dealt with uh, through Title VI, right? you know, perhaps through the withdrawal of federal funding for those programs. And so I think a lot of the concern has been, you know, precisely about that. Now, I think it's important to note that the working definition of anti-Semitism that seems to be being adopted here is one that does explicitly say that, that, that criticism of Israel 
you know, as is permissible. It, it, you know, it doesn't in any way forbade uh, or forbid criticism of Israel. Um, but I think there is a worry among some that there is enough vagueness around this definition that that um, it, it, it may have a potentially detrimental effect on academic freedom at some institutions. Yeah, and I think it's been rightly pointed out too. There's a certain irony in, um, you know, baked into this is an anti-Semitic trope itself, where Jews are often accused of not being loyal to their nation where they're existing, but to be loyal to another nation, namely Israel. And so baked into this very idea of defining Judaism as a nation of origin is this potential, um, extension of this anti-Semitic trope or, or suspicion that is imposed on on American Jews unfairly. Um, but I mean, gosh, what a, what a great example to end on that shows just how entangled and impossible it is to, um, to find distinction between the religious and the political. There are political purposes for trying to redefine religion as a nation of origin. There are political implications for it. Um, in, 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 in this, in this attempt to, um, to actually create a, a, a broadening of the definition of religion in this way, it ends up being a great illustration of precisely what we've been talking about in all these examples. Absolutely. And that's, that is a great note to end on. Uh, I know that there's a lot more that we could say about all of these examples, um, but in the interest of respecting the time of our listeners and keeping it short enough to be interesting. I do want to say thank you to Susie and Peter for joining us today. This has been a really excellent conversation um, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And thanks to our audience for listening in. Make sure to tune in to next month's episode of Discourse and check out our regular podcasts at religiousstudiesproject.com. Thanks again to Susie and Peter. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. What about the Pope? The I know, Pope. we didn't get the Pope. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening google plus <laughs> doesn't exist anymore nope